Now on Radio Italia Uno, it's time to change the world with Matt McQuinley. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We focus on changing the world for the better by taking personal responsibility, canceling cancel culture, discussing and listening to each other on topics like leadership, cultural trends, business, history, and more. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Right now on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Happy, happy Monday. According to a recent Australian government survey... 12.5% of the Australian population, or 2.6 million people, suffer from a drug or alcohol addiction. Many, many people have struggled with addiction their whole life and have still went on to accomplish great things. Some of these people include Benjamin Franklin, founding father of the United States, Sigmund Freud, Thomas Edison, Ernest Hemingway, Marilyn Monroe. Some contemporary sufferers who have also overcome addiction recently and went on to accomplish big things include Robert Downey Jr., who got sober in 2003 and, of course, in 2008 became my son's favorite actor as Iron Man and the highest paid actor in Hollywood. Until 1975, long before he was a Sir or an Oscar winner, Sir Anthony Hopkins was an addict. Larry Kudlow, after becoming sober in 1994, became a national broadcast news analyst, columnist, journalist, political commentator, talk show host, and television personality. He later went on to become a key advisor to the President of the United States on financial matters. In the 70s, Oprah Winfrey was an addict. She, of course, went on to become the first African-American female billionaire. Michael Phelps, the swimmer, had to check himself into rehab in 2014, but of course in 2016 went back to the Olympics to win five gold medals and a silver. 20 years before she became famous in Glee, Jane Lynch was an addict. We can go on and on and on. Drug and alcohol addiction affects famous actors, musicians, writers, our leaders, doctors, inventors, Veterans, white-collar and blue-collar workers alike, moms and dads, single folks, the old and the young. It affects those who aren't even addicted, family members, and society overall due to rising crime and health care costs. One person who's trying to help this is Simon Bowen, who runs a company called Visible Recovery, which is committed to helping addicts, their families, and society as a whole. Thank you for being here today, Simon. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, like so many people who are passionate about a cause, you've you've had personal experience with addiction, and my my understanding is you were a, a heroin addict and in a methadone program, and you walked out of like five or six rehabs, That's right. and and you know you lost a marriage, and it was just, I mean, tell us how you got from there. To where you are now. I mean, that yeah, whole, sure. it's amazing. Yeah, well, it's um, its more than that too. So I was addicted to all kinds of substances. Heroin was a, a big part of that. But, but alcohol, it all started with booze mm. when I was a kid. Um, when I say kid, 13 years old, I started drinking. Not heavily, uh, but I'd pinch a bottle of wine from my dad's wine store and just go out and, with friends on the weekend and, uh, and drink. Um, and that turned into... Um, 
Yeah, that became a regular thing when I was 15, 16. We were down the Allgate Pump Hotel. I think I must have paid for their refit by, by the time I was 18. <laughs> um, and, and I was surrounded by people, which is not unusual, that drank and, and, and carried on just like I did. Mm-hmm. Um, drugs became an issue as I got into my late teens. Uh, heroin became an issue in my early 20s and, and um, uh, right the way through until I was 30 years old, 32 years old before wow. I stopped. And it was a train crash. It was a classic. Uh, I, if it moved, I stole it. Um, whether I owned it or not, uh, it didn't have any meaning to me. Uh, I just stole it, stole anything I stole from my family. I, I cleaned out my mum's bank account. I did all sorts of terrible, terrible, terrible things to support my habit, um, as we do. And um, uh, I got to England in 1990. I was with a girlfriend who I met here in Australia. She flew back to the UK. I... Um, flew over there to be with her. That dissolved fairly quickly because I got back into heroin again. It was like Disneyland over there. Mm. Um, what do you mean it was like Disneyland? Well, drugs are just so freely available, you know, everywhere. They're just everywhere. London's got a population of what? The population of Australia in Greater London, isn't it? So mm-hmm. 26-odd million people in, inside Greater London. And um, because of that, there's a lot of drugs. And, um, you know, just so much easier to score 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So, yeah, my, my habit got worse. And, I, and by 90, 93, I'd had enough of heroin and I, I ended up stopping. Um, luckily enough, I moved out into Surrey and took a job in a bar out of central London and removed myself from London and, um, and got myself clean. And um, to, that, to this day, I've never used heroin again. Wow. Uh, but I did something we call swapping the bitch for the witch and I went to alcohol. Mm. And um, initially that wasn't a problem because there was uh, a lot of people around me who thought it was great having an Australian barman who drank like I did and I was a good fun party animal. And um, But that soon turned into a problem for me as I, my, I met my wife and we got married and we ran hotels together for a number of years and, and public houses and restaurants. And, and slowly but surely, you know, my wife and daughter got in the way of my drinking. And, and I hate saying that, but it's the truth. And, um, you know, drinking came first, second and third for me. Wow. And uh, and they left me. I remember her coming downstairs one day on, it was February 12, 2000. Uh, we'd been running pubs for years and years by that stage. My daughter was about five years old. Um, and she said, oh, we're leaving. And I thought she meant she was taking over to school, but she actually meant we're leaving. Wow. And, um, and I thought, oh, look, you know, she'll be back. You know, it'll be okay. And it wasn't. And um, and I didn't see my daughter for fifteen years. Holy night! Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, don't yeah. be sorry. Luckily, it, yeah. luckily, we didn't have to use the dump button. Now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and there was nothing funny about that because I had a great relationship with my daughter. I loved her dearly, and, and we just became estranged as a result, direct result of my drinking. A lot of that time, I, I, I started cleaning up and, and getting clean soon after the split. Um, I from 2000 to about 2003, late 2003, I got clean on November 29, 2003. Um, I was in and out of five rehabs and uh, it was my sixth rehab and I was about to walk out of that one. And that's a very painful life, getting clean and then going back out and drinking again and falling apart and going back into rehab. And, you know, that's a, it's a, they were the worst three years of my life, man. They were, that was awful. But eventually I, I, um, I stayed in rehab and I, I got begged to stay and, and told that this was going to be uncomfortable, that I needed to face myself and, and change. And that's what I did. Um, and it was uncomfortable. It was so uncomfortable. I didn't want to look at myself. I didn't want people to see how broken I was. This isn't about the booze. This is about your behaviour. This is about the way you communicate with people. This is about, you know, 
every other aspect of life and, and the way you think everything's okay and it's not, you know, and there was so much wrong about me. I didn't even know how to live or, 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 or be with people, you know, um, and uh, it was my way or the highway. That's how I used to run my life and, and life isn't like that, you know, and I had to learn how to live again and, um, and that rehab really started the whole process for me. The first year of my recovery was incredibly painful, as it is for anybody. It's a, it's a big, big thing to stay sober and, and to stay off the booze. When booze is so freely promoted, particularly in the UK and Australia and the States, um, it's expected here. You know, it's a part of yeah, society. No, you know, if I mean, you don't drink, they, they, they look yeah, at you like there's yeah, something wrong with you. you're Australian. It's in your genetic makeup. Exactly. You're supposed to. Mm. So, so it's, it's, it's fraught with problems and issues, and um, it's, it's really difficult to stay sober in a society that says don't stay sober. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I did it, and I, I needed to because I knew what was going to happen if I didn't. You know, I'd had three and a half years odd experience of that, and I didn't want to go back down there because I knew I'd go back down there. I knew I'd be, you know, glugging on a bottle of vodka in the car park of an off-licence in two seconds flat if I started drinking again. So I, I decided not to do that. Um, yeah, it was uncomfortable. I found some work. Um, I'm, that helped a lot. You know, I managed to get myself working and a bit of income happening. I bought myself a mountain bike. It was my recovery bike, and I went out mountain biking through the, the Midlands of, um, of England, which is just beautiful. And uh, I didn't even realise how beautiful the Stoke-on-Trent, Newcastle-under-Lyme region is, but it really is. The Peak District is pretty stunning. So that really kind of excited me and then I went on this big mountain bike holiday over to Italy and Switzerland my first holiday in sobriety and it opened my eyes up to life you know it really did you know driving driving through the the Swiss Alps and stopping and going mountain bike riding around Lake Lucerne and all that kind of stuff is just it's epic it has a real yeah. impact on you you know and and I felt like I'd arrived on planet earth for the first time in my life and I was 40 odd years old wow you know um and, you know, it, it just progressed from there. I, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I, I'm, I'm, I recovered using that method. The 12-step program really helped me. Being around others that were in the same boat as me really helped me. It gave me a framework to live my life around. I'm not religious. I don't get God. Um, I know plenty of people do, and I'm not against it. But for me, it was a, a bit of a thing at the start because I thought, oh, you've got to be religious to get this program. They talked about God a lot. It's not a religious program. It's a spiritual program. Mm -hmm. And that made it accessible for me because I believe in a higher power. I do actually believe in a higher power, and I believe something's got my back today and something wants me doing what I'm doing today. You know, well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stop on a positive right? because this story has a happy ending. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> Thank you. So we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to talk about all the great stuff you're doing now and how you've got out of that mess that you just described. Great. Thanks. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. We're back with Simon Bowen, founder and CEO of Visible Recovery. Uh, you call yourself CEO, right? Uh, managing director. Managing director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing, only different. Uh, a little bit different. Yeah, 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 yeah. Same thing. Well, actually, it is different because you can go to jail easier. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm responsible <laughs> for what happens. The buck stops with you. That's right. No matter what. Lucky. Everything is your fault. Lucky dog. When you're the owner in, yep. in Australia. What well, not that great? So, um, well, just you said so many things that were so... You know, powerful that I wanted to expand on in the last session, but geez, we're not going to even have time. But but I, I just a couple things I I, I want to uh, ask and and, and expa have you expand on is you talked about how 
you know, it was a big, when you went to England, it was like Disneyland. Mm. So, because drugs were so accessible. Very. Um, so, do you think that, and again, I, I probably, maybe I shouldn't get into this because it's a long discussion, but there's this push to make a lot of dr- uh, illicit drugs legal. So do you think that that's a – I mean, well, that would make things way worse than they are I, now? Look, I think ultimately decriminalization of all drugs needs to happen. I don't know about legal. I mm-hmm. think they're two different things. Decriminalizing for end users I think is essential if mm-hmm. they're going to get well. I really do believe okay. in that. And even my father before he died who who wanted to shoot every heroin addict under the sun <laughs> back in the day when I was addicted, uh-huh. um, he changed his mind about that. He, he, he came on board with that kind of – Idea. There's a working model in Portugal that um, uh, that that showcases this really, really well, and it's been doing it since 2003. And they've reduced their heroin addiction by some massive figure, and it's it's well documented and white papered by some pretty so, heady people. So, how, how does that? I mean, how do you decriminalize it and make it less available at the same time? Well, you don't make it less available. You decriminalize it by having um, the government provide the drugs for uh-huh. people, and then you hook them into social services to get them off. Oh, okay. So it's not it's 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 a way of actually controlling the quality of the drugs so people don't overdose, etc. Uh-huh. It's a way of um, knowing who these people are. That's really important, and giving mm-hmm. them the services that they need to get well. Mm. So I'm sorry. No, go on. So so so, like a methadone program you're talking about a little bit because to me, I mean, again, I'm I, my father used to say I have no formal education mm. nor experience in that area. Therefore, I can speak freely. Yes. Okay. So. What, what I say might be a little way off the mark. Okay? Not really. No. So, but if you, if you, but it seems to me like if somebody's dependent on a on a on a drug, mm. and you're just switching it for another drug, be it albeit one that's you know not as dangerous to them, you're not really solving the problem. Well, in I Portugal, mean, like, I guess you're solving the problem with people aren't going to go out and rob and steal to to, yeah, to, to get to, to get it to but, a point. To a point. In Portugal, they actually get them off. That's the deal. Okay. That's, that's the so deal. So it's really follow-through is key. And they still have really strict laws around dealing. So okay. anyone caught dealing is just the, oh, the okay. penalties have gone through the roof. Oh, okay. So it stops the supply for a start because okay. the government are doing it. Oh, okay. And it cool. also checks in with the people that are causing the real criminality, which are the dealers. Okay, so they go after the supply and they try to eliminate the demand. That yeah. makes sense. They mitigate it and they treat okay. it as a health issue, not a okay. criminal issue, All right. which is really what it is. What do you think about, I mean, and maybe maybe I'm getting a little bit too much in the weeds, but you know the whole story, you know all the studies they did in the 50s, you're an expert at this, not me, but <laughs> yeah. in the 50s and 60s where they took the rats and they put them in the, the thing and they gave them a choice between normal water and heroin water, and That's of course right. the rats would be in this little tiny Cajun, they just drink the heroin water until they died. And then in the 70s, they did, I think it was, guy's name was Bruce Alexander, if I remember from social studies, right, where they had the, what they called the rat park experiment, where they yep. put in, like, yeah, it was like rat heaven, you know, it had little wheels they could run on, and they yep. had lots of things to make nests, and lots of food, and lots of friends, and balls to play with. And then they, and then the rats wouldn't drink the heroin water anymore. That's right. and, and they even would take, I think, I think the memory was 57 days. They would put these other rats in there. They'd get them totally addicted for 57 days. And they'd put, put them in. back in rat heaven or rat park or whatever. And most of them would become like 
like uh, social heroin users, kind of like yeah. social drinkers except with heroin, yep. where they wouldn't really be addicts anymore. I mean, do you think – I mean, of course, rats aren't people. Well, no. I but, mean, people but aren't rats. Well, the, some the, people are rats, the but evidence, rats aren't people. The but. evidence already shows that, you know, the, the best treatment for addiction isn't um, – isn't some other, you know, like opiates, other opiates or other drugs. It's actually connection with others. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, there's a guy called um, David Best who was a emeritus professor who came over. He was seconded to Monash University uh-huh. while he was here. He's English. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's Scottish, actually. And um, he uh, came over here for a while and um, blew out his tenure. He was on the panel doing the drugs uh, research with the government. Uh-huh. And because of the government's attitude towards drugs here, he left. He decided that this was not going to change anytime soon, so mm. he, he got out. But um, he did a lot of white paper research on uh, the, the, the actual benefits of connection with people. Mm. And that's one of the things we work very closely with in Invisible Recovery is, is if you don't set up a network of clean people around you, and you think you can just go back into your old life and just not drink and not use drugs or not behave in the way that you used to, say, gambling or whatever it is, you, you're in cloud cooking land. That's not going to happen. One of the biggest changes I had to make was letting go of all those people. Mm. You know, that was the very start of it. And you need to – I surround myself with people who I aspire to be like today. Mm. They're the people that are in my life. They're the ones that – that means something to me. I was sitting with 40 of them at my engagement party on Saturday night, you know. and Congratulations, that, by the way. Thank you, yeah. It was lovely. It was a really, really nice experience, and most of them were clean. Most of them were, were addicts in recovery, and, and people there 33 years sober. Mm. You know, it was great. Wow. So you're currently running Visible Recovery. Mm. How, how many staff do you have now? I think we've got about 15 people that work there okay. uh, in various capacities. There's, um, there's a group of people that do the support work and the overnight and the weekend work. Uh-huh. Uh, there's my general manager, Mark, and my other manager, Sam, who, who do four days and one day in the chair, respectively. Um, then uh, we've got a team of psychotherapists, uh, all masters-level psychotherapists, who um, ours is a deeply psychotherapeutic intervention. So it's a real – they're doing 15 hours a week of really deep group work and, you know, one, one-on-one uh, therapy every week. Um, so it's, um, it's pretty full-on, you know. It's the, and the therapy there is the engine room of change for me. Mm. They're the guys that make it all happen. And they're all master's level psychotherapists and they're all addicts in recovery. Wow. And one of my guys is 40 years sober. Hmm. So why wouldn't you listen to him? <laughs> you know, he's done 40 years. You know, this is it. And, and there are so many good examples of visible recovery, not just me. I mean, I'm just the ideas man and put it all together. But these are the guys that are actually changing lives in there, you know. And I've had a team of people there. Some of them have been there for the whole time that Visible's been open, 10 years. Mm. And they're very, very experienced at this. You know, you <clears throat> you, you can't. Um, get better than that, you know. When you've when you've really honed your skills like that, it's quite amazing. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's a good 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 little outfit. So you kind of alluded that there's more than one approach to to you know recovery on these things. Oh, absolutely. Can, can you tell us what makes uh, what what what's the what makes visible recovery different? You know, what, what well, approach makes it a little sure, bit u- unique sure. or different from other places? The, the government tend to run a very um, pharmacologically-led uh, recovery sort of program. Uh, they're of the opinion that, you know, harm reduction is the way forward. And to some end, to, uh, I, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, I see abstinence as being the ultimate in um, harm minimization. Um, I should say harm minimization, yep. Um, 
So, uh, but that's where we differ, really. Um, I'm all about abstinence and, and changing your life and working on the trauma that underpins your addiction. Uh, you, if you've got an, an addict, you've got trauma. And unless you actually resolve that trauma and start working on that stuff, you're probably going to keep picking up and, and changing the way you feel, which is how addicts use. You know, it's what they do. I drank not for taste. I drank for effect, you know, and most alcoholics drink for effect. Mm. They don't drink for taste. Yeah, no, it doesn't taste very good the first time. No, it doesn't taste very good at all. It doesn't, <laughs> so, it doesn't taste very good when you're an alcoholic. I never really enjoyed the taste of it. Mm. I enjoyed the effect. Mm. That's why I drank. So that's really interesting that you say that there's trauma associated with addiction. Can mm. you tell me a little bit more about that? I mean, yeah, should sure. we really be thinking well, do, differently? No one, no far, one, should, I mean, people that aren't at, at addicted, should they be thinking differently well, about it? Not I think no one actually gets to a point where they're throwing so much booze down their throat that they end up on the floor every night of the week mm-hmm. without there being a reason for it. No one chooses to do that, right? Um, so the reason people do that is to change the way they feel because mm. they don't like how they feel. Mm. And if you've got something like that going on, it's normally underpinned by childhood trauma. Uh, for example, there hasn't been a male that's not walked into my facility that hasn't got absent father figure of some description. There's a correlation between men and their fathers. Mine was physically present, emotionally absent. They can have, um, you quite often come across men that have lost their father at an early age mm. uh, because their father passed on or their father left the family. Um, when you so, say early age, what age are you? Oh, five, six, seven years old. Okay, so yeah. not like 20, 25. No, 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 okay. much, much younger. Okay. I mean, most of the therapy team there will go back to family of origin stuff and how did you grow up? What did you normalise? I normalised a lot of very dysfunctional behaviour in my family so that I could cope. Mm. I didn't even realise what my trauma was until I sat in therapy for long enough to find out. Mm. Uh, you know, but a woman, for example, a woman that's been um, sexually abused by her brother or her father, heaven forbid, and this happens, um, knows exactly what she's got to work on. You know, she knows that that's the stuff that she's got to resolve. Um, for, for, for someone like me, I had no idea what my trauma was, and I was going to find that out, and I did. You know, I'm still in therapy today and really proud of that. It keeps me really keen. I'm really happy. And I'm a, I'm a, I think everyone should be in therapy. The world would run so much smoother if everyone was accountable for themselves. Mm. And there's a lot of people out there that aren't, let's face it. Yeah. Well, uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, uh, your, your daughter, that you hadn't seen your daughter in 15 years. But mm. that's the daughter, that, is that the daughter that has the PhD and is going to... She's, she's doing a PhD at Oxford University at the moment in psychology. So um, Oxford's a, pretty easy to get into, right? No. I, I, they take just, I think they take everybody. <laughs> no, that's right? not true at all. She, she was, there were 40 that they were taking, and uh-huh. she got in, I think she was the third interview and got in straight away. Wow. She's a smart girl. She's a, Amber's a very smart woman. And, um, and she's going to take the standard when, when you decide to... Yeah, she's agreed to be the successive uh, director when I pass. And, um, you know, she's got her hands full for the rest of her life as well because addiction's going nowhere. You know, we're, mm. we're, we're really battling. There aren't enough resources. There mm. aren't enough options. People aren't talking about recovery enough. Um, you know, it's, it's still a dirty word here in Adelaide and in Australia, generally speaking. People want to sweep it under the carpet and pretend it's not happening because it's too hard to talk about Uncle John who keeps, you know, wetting his bed every night of the week. We don't want the rest of the people knowing that, you know. Uh, it, it's pretty embarrassing stuff, really, addiction. And it doesn't just affect the addict. It's like a, dropping a stone into a pond. You know, the ripples just keep going out and out and out. It affects a lot of people. And uh, they say for every addict there's 30 people affected. 
Mm, wow. Yep. Well, we're going to talk more about that and, and also some potential ways that you can help people out right after this. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. We're back with Simon Bowen, uh, uh, Managing Director of uh, Visible Recovery. Uh, in the last session, you were talking about uh, that you don't feel there's enough resources being mm-hmm. allocated to the problem. Can well, you talk a little yeah. bit about what about that? I mean, what what? Well, let's face it. You know, addiction and mental health in Australia is the poor bedfellow of every politician out there. Really, um, it's not sexy. It doesn't get votes. Um, it's under resourced. You know, the health service is in tatters here. Really. Um, and, the, you know, people that have got chronic mental health conditions and or drug and alcohol additions, uh, addictions are in trouble uh, because, you know, it's clogged. The system is clogged. You, you can't just walk into a detox and get detox. You have to wait. Um, there's a, probably about a 10-day wait, 10 to 14 days typically. I don't really? Know where you, have to, you have to wait two yeah. weeks before you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. if I say yeah, I, 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 I just had an overdose, almost died of an overdose yes, yesterday, uh, for example, mm. I have to wait two weeks before I can try to. It really get some depends sort of on on the level of need. So no, not necessarily. You might go straight in. That uh-huh. depends on your need, and they prioritise everyone okay. in there. So there's someone managing all that. Okay. Look, Glenside is a great service here. We're uh-huh. really lucky to have that service there. It's some very very skilled personnel that run that place, and uh-huh. they know exactly what they're doing. And that's why we send our clients there that need detox. Okay. Um, so we're really happy with that arrangement, and that they really help. The, they really do help. That if you're going to rehab, it pushes you up the queue because they know that you're not going to be knocking at the door again in five minutes' time. Okay. It's not a merry-go-round. So it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to do. Um, but, yeah, there's not enough resources. There's not enough money being spent on health in this country anymore. There, I remember the health services as a young boy uh, growing up in Elizabeth Vale and, um, and then moving to the Adelaide Hills when I was 12. You know, the health service was, was to be commended. You know, it, Medicare was fantastic. Anyone could get to any doctor any time. There was no issues. Now we've got waits for hospitals, waits for operations, you know, people, people dying waiting to get into places, you know. Why like, do you think that is? Lack of spend. Purely lack of spend. The government aren't focused on the health and the education of the community anymore. That's the problem. When I was back, when I was a kid, university was free. Education should be free. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm a proponent for that. You know, drugs and alcohol should be decriminalised because we're not going to get anywhere until we do that. If we keep criminalising it, we've got 2,500 beds here in jail in South Australia. And last I knew, it was around about 150,000 a year to keep people in jail. And you're 70% full of addicts. There's something wrong there. You know, the, the, and these people aren't getting any better in jail. They're coming out and the recidivism is huge. So they're walking straight back in there again the moment they get back out because there's no treatment programs here to deal with it. So until we start really making some headway into that kind of stuff, there's not going to be a lot that changes. So is it per cat? I, I, I'm not familiar with, uh, with the Australian... Uh, you know, spend on on these kind of things, but so per capita, is it less than it was thirty or forty years ago? Oh, definitely, there's far less resources than even the ten years I've been back in Adelaide. So I got back in Adelaide around 2010, I think it was 2011, and Visible Recovery opened. Or I started working on it in 2012, opened in 2013. Um, so uh, it's yeah, it's they they closed something like 40 beds. Archway in Port Adelaide closed. 
and then the um, uh, what was the name of the program up in McGill? I can't um, I can't recall the name of it. That was ten beds over there. So we had fifty odd beds disappear in a matter of a couple of months because it was all defunded. The government defunded the Salvation Army's um, Towards Independence program. That was a really good program for people who were homeless and addicted that could get them some stable housing over in Dawkins Place in Adelaide or over here at um, uh, Whitmore Square mm-hmm. and get them stable, get them get them to a point where they could actually live in a flat, upskill them, teach them some skills. There's some really good counselling going on there. They've defunded it hmm. overnight. And that's tragic when they do stuff like that. And, you know, I, I see things happen. You know, I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, Adelaide's a beautiful city. I'm glad they've got a footbridge. But come on, 40 million bucks. You know, I could run a rehab for 40 years for 40 million bucks. You know, and I just get really – the cleaning contract for that is what? One point something million a year? I mean, it's just – we're just squandering money in places that really we should be looking at the real needs of the community first. Hmm. And I'm, I'm – I'm, I'm not saying the government are doing a bad job because we live a really good quality of life here in Adelaide. We're very, very lucky, and I've travelled the world and seen what other people have to put up with, and we don't put up with a lot of that here. However, it could be so much better, mm. and it just isn't, you know. And particularly with all this stuff, you know, it's not sexy. It doesn't get votes. That's that's what it comes back to. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's well. It seems like the awareness of it, of mental health and drug abuse has went up a lot in the oh, last yeah. fifteen, twenty. 30 well, years, certainly, hasn't it? Certainly now. Uh, look, 10 years ago, rehab was a dirty word here in Adelaide. And oh, no one wanted, oh okay. yeah. No one wanted to talk about it. And it was uh, kind of, uh, you know, looked down and you kind of looked at a bit strange if, if you went into rehab. Today, rehab is not a dirty word. Okay. That's progress, but it's not progressing fast enough. You know, there, you know uh, there are times at my rehab where we've got three or four beds going. I've got 12 beds. We should be full all year round, period. I should be opening a 30-bed rehab and, and getting 30 people in there because there's more than 30 people that need treatment in Adelaide, I can tell you that. You only have to drive around. I drove from Hutt Street, from one end of Hutt Street to the other the other day and saw five people absolutely off their heads on methamphetamine walking the streets of Hutt Street. And this is at 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm. They're easy to spot. There's one there. There's one there. There's one. You know what I mean? And this goes on daily, daily, daily. And there's no support for those people. There's no mm. funding to get them into, into, into uh, treatment to get them well. They turn up at hospitals and clog our emergency wards. My own mother, who died of cancer, was corridored uh, for, for She was really, really ill and desperately needed to get into emergency. And we couldn't get her in because there were so many methamphetamine addicts that were off their box and completely in, in psychosis. Um, that we had to wait for two and a half hours before she could be given a bed. Hmm. That's not right. You know, that isn't right. And um, we desperately need to do something because this problem isn't going anywhere. So if you could wave a magic wand, Mm. you know, I mean, how would you – I mean, obviously these are big societal issues. Well, there's no – I mean, what what – what would you do? There's, well, you- we, we've, we've applied to SA Health for private health insurance funding and they won't give it to us. Um, I'd like to open up a 30-bed rehab and I've been talking with Mount Barker Council about that and they would, they would support having one built in that, in that area. I'd like to do that. I'd probably get the funding together to ha- make that happen. Uh, but I need to know that we're going to get le- you know, assistance with um, private health insurance to get that going. Um, from that, you could run. You could run some free beds. You know, you could actually give some back to society. That would be the that would be the idea of that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I don't see anyone else. There's no one in the queue opening up rehabs. You know, it's not it's not uh, a, a preferred career. If well, you like. yeah, it's, it's definitely damn hard not, work. Well, yeah, it's know. definitely not something you're going to do because you want to get rich. No, I mean, I, no, I, I, I make more money digging holes. Mm. Mm, that's the truth. It's an expensive little enterprise. Um, look, we turn over over a million dollars a year in the last couple of years, but the bottom line is the costs that I'm faced with are huge. My, my wage bill is up around 25 grand a fortnight. 25 grand a fortnight. So that would be about, oh, okay. So that's almost a million bucks there. Well, that's more than a million bucks there. Well, there you go. Yeah, 40 times 25,000 is a million. Yeah. And there's 52 weeks in the year, so, so it's 1.25 and some extra. It's, it runs on just about thin air at the end of the year, okay. pretty much. It's pretty close to the wire. So it's not like anyone's getting rich out of this at all. You know, the the costs are huge doing this work. Um, and, you know, a 30-bed rehab would, would probably make some decent money, to be honest with you. I wouldn't mind going out to the wineries and saying they've got social responsibility programs going on. You know, what about funding a rehab, for God's sake? And most of them are going to laugh at me and chuck me out the door. But there'll be one or two that go, actually, that's not a bad idea. I want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. But I can't set that up unless, one, I've got a premises and, two, I've got the the go-ahead from government to actually license the premises to get it funded. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the problem. And why do you think that there there isn't the enthusiasm from the government? I mean, you say it's not sexy, but it, it isn't sexy. But it, but it does but it does lead to other issues that you know, if they can say, "Look, I've brought down crime in my district from this to this," or yeah. you know, I've brought down. You know, uh, I mean, I, I, just, I mean, I just, it, it, it's, I mean, because it leads to other things. Yeah, you know, I, just, I, I mean, just think there's not enough focus on um, on health in this in this in this city in, in any city in Australia. There just isn't, and it needs to be treated as a health problem, not a criminal problem. Mm. And for as long as they criminalise drugs and alcohol here, there's going to be issues. And and you only have to look to Portugal model to see that that works. Google it. Hmm. It's pretty interesting. I will. I will yeah, definitely. I wish I would have before the show. I wasn't aware about uh, the the Portugal uh, thing there. Uh, so, your opinion? I mean, at what point though do you have? Do, do people take responsibility though? I mean, that, what, that varies. Because I, I, I'm hearing, and, and again, I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm just trying to, because there's the balance between hey, they've had this, these challenges that's mm-hmm. led to this problem, mm-hmm. but you know. Complaining about it is is isn't going to help. Well, some people you know. complain about addiction until they die. Yeah. Um, in my recovery, I've lost sixteen people. Wow. We had a guy die just last year, mm. late last year, um, who 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 was a really lovely guy. It, sh- it shouldn't have happened. Um, so you know, this is a fatal illness. And make no make no bones about that. Um, and I take that very seriously. People should do something about it. It's easy to let alcohol run away with you, particularly in today's society. You know, it's not, there's no shame in going, I've got a problem. Put your hand up and ask for some help, for God's sake. Don't just think you can do this on your own. I could never do, I couldn't have done this on my own. If I didn't have the help of the people around me who are still in my life today, even though they're 12,000 miles away, I'm still in touch with the people that first helped me. One of the guys I met at my first AA meeting is one of my best friends. He got me going to the gym and got my health back back on track and stopped me smoking. Bless him, John, you know, 70-odd years old, you know. And, and you know, people like that are, are, are diamonds, diamonds in the sky. They really are. And, they, and, and I've got a whole, you know, place full of them at my place. They're, they're absolute diamonds, every single one of them. They all contribute. 
all the support workers that stay overnight and work with the clients and get them to the AA meetings and get them off to, you know, and deal with their issues in the middle of the night when they knock on the door, you know, and wake them up and say, right, I've got, I'm feeling this or that or whatever it is. These guys help because they've been there. What, what, uh, what, what do you think, how can people get involved to help? Well, you can you can volunteer at the a lot of not for profit agencies around town, but there aren't many of them supporting a drug and alcohol thing at the moment. It's pretty hard to do an alcohol and other drugs cert for, for example, because you need to be attached to a place that deals with alcohol and other drugs, and we can't take you until you've got a cert for in AOD. So, so it's a bit of a so that's another challenge, not just is, money, but finding the right people to help. Absolutely. Wow. Well, we're going to be back in a little bit uh, to wrap things up with Simon. Uh, Bowen from Visible Recovery. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Well, Simon, in the little bit of time we have left, can you tell us uh, uh, maybe a success story or two? Definitely. Uh, about from Visible Recovery? Yeah, we work closely with the Department of Veteran Affairs, um, and we often get guys that come to us who are really damaged and and um, struggling with chronic post-traumatic stress disorder mm. and one of the chaps that that I'm referring to um, Patrick his name is um, he'll know who he is he's a lovely lovely man and uh, he came to us he was almost catatonic he wouldn't look people in the eye he looked down at the ground all the time um, it took him a long time to get to us he was in hospital for quite some time with chronic liver problems and and his levels were really high and they wouldn't let him out until he'd stabilized on his medications and yeah and um, when he first came in and I met him and I just thought oh my god I think he's I just don't think he'll stay you know I really and that's it just shows you how wrong you can be because this guy stayed with us for a year and um, worked hard on himself i mean this guy really just laid himself bare and um you want to see this guy now he's just he's got his own place um he's still seeing us for therapy on a fortnightly basis um and we'll continue doing that for some time i'd imagine he's just doing so well he's running his own life he's he's i've been out for lunch with him a couple of times he's a very enjoyable person to be around today and i just love seeing that whole turnaround happen you know the the whole the complete change of personality and, and, and lifestyle, which is just fantastic. And that's what it did to me. You know, when I look at Mark, Mark came to my rehab um, seven years ago, uh, methamphetamine addicted and, um, and a gambler, heavy gambler, and, and an alcoholic. And um, he's now the manager of my rehab. And if you asked wow. me that seven years ago, I would have said that's not happening. <laughs> uh, that's so, awesome. so, well, and Mark is one of the most lovely guys and works incredibly hard and he understands addiction as much as I ever will. And um, he knows the program inside out and that he couldn't be more perfect. And he's six foot eight. <laughs> <laughs> so you have the carrot and the stick yeah, at your re- <laughs> He's a gentle job. He wouldn't ever try. He's a great facility. Dear man, he's a fantastic guy. That's wonderful. Yeah. So, so yeah, we do get some really good stories, you know, some really good um, episodes of recovery happening, and, and it's always good to see that. We've got a guy at the moment who's flying back to Perth next week. He's been with us for nine months. He's really changed. He's, he was a wreck when he came in. Um, he's just really changed this time around. This is his second visit to us. We only allow people to come twice. After that, they go somewhere else. Um, but this is his second time round. He said it, and things were different. We could sense that this time round he really wanted to actually make a go of it. He was with us previously some years ago. Uh, we decided to take him back on, and that's been a great decision. He's just doing so well. 
Mm. So what uh, what percentage of people actually are successful? We very much cherry pick. So I won't take someone unless I know they're ready. And I'm a pretty good judge of that. So is Mark, because uh, we both had to be ready to do it. So mm. we know how that feels and what, what we need to be saying, how that looks. Um, I'm not inclined to take people just for the money. We don't do that. I refuse people before today that have been funded by government because they're just not ready to be here. And we're not there to drag people through their recovery. It doesn't work. Mm. You know, you need to have people who are actually willing to meet you halfway. And until they're there, we're not going to take them. Um, if they're there, and we'll, 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 we'll do whatever's required, you know, and, um, and that will be a, a win. And even then, we still only get roughly sort of 60-odd percent of the people that come to us are still clean a year later. So um, that's an extraordinary high outcome. What's the one thing that you want the listeners to carry away from our time here today? Recovery is entirely possible. No matter what you think, Put your hand up, get some help. I don't care where you get it. I don't care if you stand frozen uh, on a frozen lake naked to get clean. Do it. Um, you know, recovery really does rock, and um, it's totally worth it. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Stax, for being here today, Simon. I, I got a lot out of it, and I'm sure the audience did as well. And I want to thank Mark for paneling for us today. And I want to remind you all to tune in next week at 6 p.m. on Monday. Our, our guest next week is John Connolly, who has an inspirational story to tell us all and some keys to help us out in our everyday lives. And just as an FYI, I'm going to be doing uh, part three of my three-part series on overcoming obstacles and adversity this Wednesday at uh, 96 Sir Donald Bradman Drive at uh, one of the station sponsors, BHA. Event starts at 6.30. Tickets are almost sold out, uh, but not quite. But most of all, I want to thank you all for listening. And instead of an inspirational story like I usually do, I, I just want to leave you with a thought. And it's a story about a fellow who was walking down the street. And he fell into this deep, deep hole. And the, the walls of the hole were so steep that he couldn't get out. And he's he, he's sitting in this hole, and he's hoping, oh, my gosh, how am I going to get out? And his pastor walks by. And the man looks up and says, Father, Father, can you please help me out of this hole? So the pastor writes down a prayer, throws it into the hole, says a prayer, and walks on. Then a doctor walks by, and he says, Doctor, Doctor, please help me out of this hole. And the doctor says, oh, wow, that's rough. Uh, writes him a prescription throws it down in the hole, and then walks off. Then one of his friends walks by, and he goes, Buddy, please, please help me get out of this hole. And his friend, without even thinking, leaps into the hole. And the man's like, Man, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Now we're both down here in this hole. And his friend said, Well, yeah, we're both in the hole, but guess what? I've been down here before, and I know the way out. So if you're having these kind of challenges, find somebody like Simon who's been down there and can show you the way out. Because there's two kinds of people listening today. There's the kind of person that's going to continue to suffer, going to continue to hurt themselves and the one that they love. And then there's the kind they're going to get the help they need and live the life they were meant to live. My question to you is, which one are you?